Well, the French philosopher René Descartes had trouble believing what people told him. In fact, he had trouble believing what he saw for himself as well. He kind of postulated the theory that everything that you see and hear, everything that you can smell and, and feel, might just be a figment of your own imagination. And so you can never be sure that anything is real. And you can never be sure that anything even exists, except for one thing. If everything around you is a figment of your imagination, that means you must have an imagination, which means you must exist, which is why he came up with the pithy little philosophical maxim, I think, therefore I am. And the only thing that you can be sure of is that you exist if you think. Uh, so I find it highly ironic and endlessly fascinating that a person who was so skeptical of things that you could see would also be the one who invented the concept of luminiferous ether. So ether is a substance that Descartes postulated existed in outer space. And the idea was that since light has a wave nature, wave nature only works if there is um, a substance that the wave can move through. And since we can see the light of the sun and of the stars and of the moon, there must be a substance in space that the light is moving through using its wave nature. And so he postulated this idea of luminiferous ether, and it was adopted by the scientific community. In fact, the scientific community lapped it up like a, a thirsty, gullible little puppy for over a hundred years. And all scientists used the fact that there was this substance out there in all of their calculations that were never proven incorrect. Um, he described this as a substance that was invisible, weightless, causing no friction and had no other effect that would prove its being. And yet he believed it was there, even though there was absolutely no way of knowing that for certain. And this went on until 1905, when Einstein was the one who categorically showed that it was a figment of Descartes' imagination, that there was no such thing as ether. And this was because as the development of quantum physics came onto the scene and through the little curveball that light not only has a wave nature but also has a particle nature so it can actually move through a vacuum that Einstein proved space was filled with a vacuum. And even after that, people refused to believe Einstein because they were so committed to this idea that had been around for so long that ether existed even though nobody had seen it. J.J. Thompson, the... British physicist said, ether is not a fantastic creation of the speculative philosopher, but is, an, is, is as essential to us as the air we breathe. J.J. Thompson, one of the great physicists, said that we need ether to exist the same way we need air to exist, and we now know that it just never existed. You know, obviously, Yuri Gagarin and Neil Armstrong and those type of people have gone out there and saw there's no ether that you have to swim through in space. But it does make you wonder, what other facts have we been told that might not be true? What else is out there that we, we can't see, but that we have faith in? I mean, have you ever seen Jesus? No, me neither. 
out of the mouth of babes. At least children understand that. There's some grown-ups that claim that they have seen Jesus. They're lying. Or they're deluded. And yet, we who have not seen Jesus still believe in him. We trust in him. We place the very eternity of our souls on the fact that he's real. With that in mind, turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to look at the way saving faith appears in a believer's life. Now, in the context here, Peter writing this epistle that's going to Christians that have been scattered out of their homeland by persecution, he tells them that the trials they're going through are not random, that those trials are necessary, they're part of our faith. The trials that God allows in our life have two main purposes that we looked at last week, that they prove your faith and they improve your faith. They prove your faith, not to God. God doesn't test you to see if you believe in him because he's not sure. God tests you to show you that you believe in him and to show others that you believe in him. And that it's not really a case of passing or failing the test because it's kind of like an eye test. It just sort of shows you where you are in your faith is the way you respond to your trials. So yes, it proves your faith to yourself and to others, but also trials improve faith. And God uses testing and difficulty and driving us to rely on him and rely on his grace to make us more like Christ and to strengthen our faith in Christ, that you can get through these trials by believing in a savior that you can't see. And so that's where we kind of pick up the flow of his argument here as Peter now addresses an important part of your motivation, the unseen object of your faith. So we'll pick it up again in verse 6. In this, you rejoice. In this, um, the, this is the, the security of your salvation that can't be taken from you, that is imperishable and undefiled that he's been talking of, right? So in this, you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that, here's the purpose of the trials, the tested genuineness of your faith, your proven faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And then next week he talks about the salvation and how mysterious it is. But we're going to look at three ways saving faith appears in the believer's life. Saving faith, firstly, loves the unseen Savior. Secondly, believes the unseen Savior. And thirdly, rejoices in the unseen salvation that is to come. So the first way saving faith appears in your life as a believer is that it will cause you to love the unseen Savior. Look at verse 8. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Now, I remember the very first time I saw Kim. Um, I, I was in the apartment of her boyfriend. And... I saw on their mantelpiece, there was a picture of the two of them together. And before I could catch myself, I said to him, wow, you have a really beautiful sister. I mean, he had his arm around her. And he said, oh, that's not my sister. That's my girlfriend, Kim. 
you're going to meet her tonight at Bible study. And in fact, he was the one that introduced us. <laughs> Big mistake, right? <laughs> and we, we always ask couples, tell us how you met. Because the assumption is that the first step in your relationship is seeing each other face-to-face -face in person. But it's not. It's not always that way. Sometimes the first step in your relationship happens before you see the person. In this case, I'd just seen a photograph of her and knew of her before I actually met her. In the same way, your relationship with Jesus Christ isn't initiated the moment you see him face-to-face -face and meet him in person. In fact, that is a future reality that gives us joy and causes us to long for. But that doesn't mean that we can't love him now. It doesn't mean that we can't know him now, for he has revealed himself to us in other ways. So not a photograph of him, but who he is and what he's done for us is all over the pages of Scripture. All of the prophecies from all of the ages past pointing towards him. All of the record of who he was and what he did when he was on earth. And all of the explanation in the epistles of what all of that meant and all of the implications and what he's like. And then the revelation of John telling us what it will be like to see him face to face. And all of these things. So we can know and love the unseen Savior before we even meet him personally. So no, I have not seen Jesus and neither have you. But I know about him. And I can know him. And he knew us before we were even born. And so Peter writes to his readers, though you have not seen him, you love him. Peter's readers were not as privileged as he was to have been personally discipled by Jesus Christ for three years in the flesh. But does that make their love for Jesus any less real? Not according to Peter. You've not seen him and yet you love him. You see, Peter realizes that love for Christ is not based on the normal reasons people love each other. Mostly, the reason you would love someone is because of mutual time that you spend together and as you get to know them, and there's attractive qualities about them that uh, draw you to one another. But some love is not based on the mutual experience of time. Some of the love that we have and the respect that we have and the admiration has with, we can have with the person happens without any physical presence. And so the reasons that we love Jesus have nothing to do with his looks or his personality or his charm or his charisma or his humor or his ability to hold a conversation. I mean, you ask, you ask ladies, um, what do you see in, in your man? You know, why did you marry him? And you know what the number one reason is that women usually give? Humor. He made me laugh. That's why. And then you're like, okay, that explains it because he's not much to look at, but I guess if he's got a sense of humor... But then you ask the same woman 15 years later, what is the most annoying thing about your husband? It's like he can never keep a serious conversation going. He's always joking about everything. So the very thing that attracted you is now the thing that's annoying you, right? Oh, I just love that he was so competent that he could just fix anything and do anything. And he was so passionate about his sport. And, he, and now I never see him because he's always watching sport and working on projects outside in the yard. So the very things that attract us to one another, are, they're really ephemeral. They, they kind of come and go. And there's a season where you like them. And there's a season where you don't. But what draws us to Jesus Christ is not those things. It's not the superficiality of what he's like. We love Jesus for who he is and for what he's done. 
who he is and what he's done. So who he is, 1 John 1.12 tells us, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So whoever received Jesus and believed in Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So in John 1.12, we're told this is who he is. He's family. Jesus is your family. And you know your family. You, don't, you didn't pick your family. That's like an old meme, right? You, don't, you pick your friends, not your family. You love your family not because you would have chosen them, but because they're family. It's just part of who it is. John 14, 23, Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make a home with him. So when you love Jesus, you are in the family. You can't be in God's family with God being with you and, and in a sense, making his home with you if you reject Jesus. And that's why Christians get such a bad reputation for being so exclusive and intolerant. It's not that we're intolerant. It's just that we, we understand that the only way to be part of the Father's family is to come through Jesus Christ. He's the one that gets us in. That's why Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, John 14, 6. And so in John 14, 23, he says, but if you do love me and keep my word, my Father will love you and come and make your home with you. So that's who he is. He's our family. He is the Son of God. He is the bridge between us sinners and divine righteousness. And he could come and live among us and live human lives, walking, a human life walking on earth, being, being tempted in the same way we're tempted, having the same weaknesses that we have, and yet without sin. And then offering that righteousness on the cross, making it available for us sinners to embrace that by placing our faith in him. And him paying for all of our sin because he was the one person that didn't need to die. He was the one person that never disappointed the father he's the only person ever to love god with all your heart mind and strength and your neighbor is yourself and so he could offer that righteousness to us and take our guilt from us so that's who he is and that's what he's done he gave his life for us john 15 says greater love has no one than this that one lays down his life for his friends There is no greater love than you would lay down your life, that you would give your life up for someone, and that's what he did for us. So we're, we're his friends, we're his family, and he lived for us, and he, he said no to Satan for us, and he died for us. And yes, the primary motivation behind all of that was the glory of God the Father and his love for God the Father, but... All of that plan from eternity past was so that we, the bride of Christ, could be called out from among people and could be brought into the love relationship of the Trinity. The Father's eternal love for the Son and the Son's eternal love for the Father all in the Spirit and that we get to be redeemed from our sin and made perfect by His sacrifice for us so that we can all live together for eternity. So that's who He is. That's what He's done. First John 4.19 says, We love because... He first loved us. That's John 14, 23. Sorry, uh, that, no, 
John 14, 23 is the other one. Keep my word, my father will love him. This is 1 John 4, 19. 1 John chapter 4, 19. 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. So we love is a response to his love. And we, we don't, I mean, in this day and age, it's, it's more acceptable to speak about the love that we have for Jesus and the love that Jesus has for us. But for many, many hundreds of years, throughout church history. If you go and read church history and you read the way people wrote about Jesus and the hymns that they wrote to him, there's, there's a lot about his love for us. But people get squeamish about talking about our love for him. And there, there was a sense that, well, we need to serve him. He's our master. We are his slave. And we need to worship him. He's our creator. We are his creation, his creatures. But this idea that we can be brothers and sisters with him, that, that he's our friend who gave his life for us, that we can love him and express love to him, was something that, that took a level of maturity to realize and handle well. And I think what happens today is we kind of get that backwards. Immaturity expresses love for Jesus before understanding who he is. And immaturity just talks about uh, Jesus in such a way that it's hard to tell if you're talking about your, your boyfriend or your God. In fact, Pastor Will recently with the young adults had this, um, this little game that they played where he would read lyrics and then ask them, is this talking about Jesus or is this talking about a girlfriend? And it's remarkable that some of the songs that we sing to Jesus, unless you were sitting in a church building, you could think it was just a love song to some girl. But all that to say, it's not wrong for us to express love to Jesus as long as we do it rightly and understand who he is in our lives and what he's done for us. And that's why the hymn that we, we sang, Jesu, lover of my soul, we, we say Jesus, but Wesley actually wrote it as Jesu, as like a, a, an intimate nickname for Jesus in a sense. A lot of people didn't like that, so they just put the S on there. We can't, we can't do that. But that, that's how intimately Wesley felt about this. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. Um, just this, you are my all. I can do nothing without you. I hang my soul on thee. Th these intimate tones with this, um, this minor key, with the intensity of it. That's why it took so long to be adopted in hymn books and churches because people thought, is this, is this okay to call Jesus the lover of your soul? But absolutely it is. Jesus wasn't squeamish about the love that he had for his followers and expected from them. Let me give you some verses. John eight forty two. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. Because these were Jews that were claiming that God was their father, but they were rejecting Jesus. It's like, no, if you truly are right with God, you would love me. In John 21, verse 15, repeatedly he asks Peter, Simon, do you, what, love me? Do you love me? Luke 7, 47. You know, that's such a beautiful story. Let me... Let me just read you part of it. It's the story of in Luke 7 um, of the lady who comes and anoints Jesus' feet with her tears. Um, uh, 
Luke 7, 36, one of the Pharisees had invited Jesus to come and eat with him. And in verse 37, a, a woman of the city who was a sinner, so probably, you know, a prostitute, um, when she learned that he was reclining a table at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster, alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and, and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. And now we know the story. A lot of um, Christians are familiar with the story, but this is a very, very disturbing scene contemporaneously for the people alive at the time this would have been very shocking it's very intimate you know in those days women women had long hair and they would keep their hair up and veiled when they were in public and when they were at home with their husbands is when they would let their hair down it is considered a very intimate thing um, don't worry, ladies, you don't have to put your hair in a ponytail. I'm not saying anything today. I'm just saying in those days, that's what it was. And in some Middle Eastern cultures, even today, women cover their hair unless they're at home alone with their husband, and then that's when their hair comes down. But this woman, noticing now that she's, she's kind of spilling her tears on Jesus' feet, has nothing to wipe it with, and so she lets her hair down and starts wiping his feet with her hair because she's just so, so moved and embarrassed and not thinking clearly, maybe, and just overwhelmed with emotion for him. And this is in public, and everyone's seeing, here's this this woman who's known for her activities, she's a sinner, a known sinner, and she's now with Jesus in public with her hair down, touching him, kissing him, kissing his feet. It's extremely intimate and would make the host very squeamish. In verse 39, when the, Pharisees who had invited, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him. For she's a sinner. And Jesus, being able to read his mind, answering, said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. The idea is both can't pay. Um, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. And now notice what he says here. You gave me no water for my feet, yet she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. So you would kiss people on the cheek there, men kissing men, women kissing women, when you went over to someone's house, unless they were complete strangers to you. And so he's saying... You didn't even offer me the, any sign of intimacy, and she hasn't stopped showing me signs of intimacy. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And then this great line, for she loved much. But he who's forgiven little loves little. He says to her, your sins are forgiven. Isn't it interesting? She loved much. So Jesus is equating this display, this extravagant devotion, this intimate, you know, dare I say, inappropriate display. He takes from where it's coming, from her heart. And he interprets that as love and says she loves. 
And she loves much. And the reason she loves much is because she's so sinful that she, she realizes how much she owes me. A debt she could never pay. But the thing is that you, Simon Pharisee, who does everything right, you also have a debt you can't pay, and yet you don't seem to realize that. You don't seem as grateful as she does. So who would you rather be in the story? The one who's lived a pretty clean-cut life and has sort of the normal hidden sins and therefore has practically no affection for Jesus? Or the woman who's lived a wretched life, a wretched life but knows it and is desperate for her Savior and is overwhelmed by what he is doing for her? That's who I want to be. And so Peter says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. You know, minimizing your sin and the egregiousness of your sin is a sign of lack of love for Jesus. When you apologize to somebody, never say, you know, I'm really sorry that I did this, but it was because you did that. You know, I'm really sorry I snapped at you, it's because I was hungry. Whatever, it's like, as soon as you give a reason for why you did it, what you're saying is, what it isn't actually as bad as what you think it is. No, here's a woman who's not minimizing her sin. She's just pouring herself out to Jesus, and he takes that as love. And so this was a lesson that was drilled home to my wife and I when we were um, young adults in the, the college ministry at our, the church where we met, um, Grace Community Church, where our pastor, Rick Holland, used to constantly say, Christianity is not about behavior modification. Christianity is about Christ. And he would just drill that home week after week, and it really left an impression on me. Christianity is not about behavior modification. Because if you're new to church and church circles, or you grew up in church, you might think that the reason you come to church, the reason you read your Bible, the reason you go to all of the teachings is so you can learn what you need to stop doing. Or you need to learn what you need to start doing more of and how you need to be, and how you need to behave. But actually, that's a misunderstanding of what the religion of Christianity is. Christianity is a relationship with Jesus Christ that then leads to expressions of devotion and love and obedience. Not the other way around. So Christianity is not a way of life. It's not about how you speak. It's not about how much you sacrifice. It's not about avoiding pleasures. It's about, it's about seeking Christ, loving Christ, wanting to learn what, what he wants so that you can give it to him. And so Christianity is about one thing. And remember Jesus said that, we looked at this recently on the Wednesday nights, when Mary and Martha are there, and Martha is busy serving Jesus and his disciples and the whole entourage, serving, 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 getting a little frustrated because her sister has chosen to express her love in a different way, the convenient way of sitting at Jesus' feet and doing nothing. And at, when you read the, the account, you kind of want to side with Martha at first. I mean, how many of you have done that? You've hosted someone and your spouse is just sitting there doing nothing. Let's face it, the husband's sitting there doing nothing. And the wife's doing everything in the kitchen. She comes out and like, why aren't you helping me? This is our party, not mine. That's what Martha's doing. But she goes, Jesus, will you please tell her no, she doesn't say please. Jesus, tell her to come and help me. And Jesus corrects her and says, no, she has chosen the better portion. There's one thing that's necessary. 
a relationship with Jesus is what's necessary. Now, if you, can, if you can foster that relationship with Jesus through busy service and not get bitter about it that other people aren't doing it, that's great. But if you're serving because you don't really want to for Jesus, you're missing the point of serving. And there's one thing that's important, and that is to connect with Christ. Now, I'm not saying you don't need to study his teachings, like love your enemies and do good to them. And I'm not saying that there's no example to be found of how to live and forgiving and don't be judgmental. And yes, there's theology about his person and work and all those things. But our relationship with Christ is based not on these modifications that come after you know him. Our relationship with Christ is based on who he is and what he's done for us. So you can believe all those things and do all those things, but if it's not out of love, you're missing the point. So what does this love mean? So this is an important question. I struggle with this even in seminary. So I was at seminary, and one of the first times we had a question and answer session with John MacArthur, who's the president of the seminary. He's sitting on stage, Q&A, and my hand goes up. And I asked him this question, and now looking back, it's kind of embarrassing because I'm like a seminary student. <laughs> but I was struggling with this, and I asked him, like, how do you show love to Jesus? I said, what does it mean to love Jesus? Because I had come from a background, I grew up Catholic, where um, religion was very formalized. Stand up now, sit down then, you know, dip your hand, do the thing, say your prayers, you, you know, keep count of them as you're going on your rosary. It was like very works-oriented. And then I got this exposure through friends in high school to this charismatic movement, which was very like everyone singing to the Holy Spirit and singing about love for Jesus, and, and people were weeping. Like whenever we had the, the college group I'd go to, like everyone was crying all the time. And I was like, I just, I don't get it. I mean, what are we crying about here, you know? Um, and they were crying because they just loved Jesus so much, and I just felt very out. Well, I was an unbeliever. I didn't realize that at the time. But then when I actually heard the gospel for the first time and I got saved... Then it started bugging me because I was like, well, I know that the, the emotionless externality of my religion was wrong. And I, I didn't see any of the new emotion kicking in, which I thought would happen now that I'm saved. And so I just didn't know. How do you, how do you feel love for Jesus? So this is what I asked John, John McGough at the Q&A. And he, he wasn't condescending. He wasn't, oh, Padawan learner, you know, patting me on the head or whatever. No, he... He said that Christ's, the way that you show love to Christ is through obedience. And it just opened, it just like opened up this whole world of like, oh, that's what Jesus wants to see from me. And here's some verses, John 14, 23. Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, and what he's about to say is going to answer the question. If, any, if anyone loves me, what? How do you show love to Jesus? If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. And my father will love him. Very simple. If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word, obey me, do what, do what I say, and my father will love him. Very simple. John 14, 23. Or John, uh, 1 John 5, verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God. What's the love of God? This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. And that phrase, 
in, in 1 John 5, 3, his commandments are not burdensome, is crucial to the point. It's not the works righteousness thing. Oh, the way I know I love Jesus is I'm checking all the boxes. No, it's this is how you love. You love by keeping his commandments and those commandments aren't burdensome. They're just a method of you showing love. So I, I, my wife and I, I mean, I never bought Kim flowers because, I mean, they, they die. So why not buy something that can last, right? But at one point she kind of told me, hey, I actually like getting flowers. Um, and that's like the simplest things. And the best thing, guys, is you buy it when there's no occasion. And then you just, just get way more points. So not that it's about getting points, but like I do, I do love her and I do want to show. And so every once in a while I'll be at Publix and I'll just go and buy like those extravagantly expensive things that are going to die in a week. But I'll just throw them in the cart. Like I didn't have to pick them. I didn't have to grow them. Just put them in the cart. Always carry them upside down, by the way, so that, um, you, know, you know, I've told you that. And then we get home, and she's all like, oh, wow, thank you, and like brightens her day. And I'm like, that's like the easiest 12 bucks I've ever spent, you know. <laughs> it's going to get me a week of points. But, I mean, not about the, it's not about the points, right? I'm looking for a way to show my love, and it's a simple way. Well, with Jesus, it's not about the points. It's not about like, oh, I need to obey Jesus so I can get to heaven. No, that's all taken care of. Kim's going to stay married to me whether I get her flowers or not. I mean, I could save hundreds of dollars over the course of our marriage if I just let that sink in. She's not going to leave me if I don't buy her flowers. But that's not why you do it, right? There's something in you that wants to express what you feel. And so that's what you express to Jesus when you feel thankful for his love for you and his life for you and his death for you and he's conquering the grave for you and his adoption into the family and all that he's willing to do for you when you feel that gratitude the way you respond is i want to find out what he wants and then i'm going to give it to him as as much as i can so that's one way the other way is devotion to him so obedience to him but there's also devotion and i just read that woman who showed her extravagant devotion in in luke 7 but there's the way we show devotion to Jesus is if we sing to him. He loves singing. And we, we give of our finances to him. He loves sacrifice. He loves it when you decide that there's something you could have for yourself that you want to give away so that you don't have it, so that you can be a part of what he's doing in his kingdom. So sacrifice is a way of showing devotion. And singing is a way of showing devotion. Of course, praying to him and expressing what's on your heart is a way of showing devotion and sometimes those overlap like he tells you to do good to people and to bless them so you're obeying him when you do that but you're also showing devotion because there's sacrifice involved in doing that and so if all the christians in the world are constantly keeping the word of god obeying jesus and and sacrificing and singing to him and praying to him and doing things to others in order to bless him just imagine how powerful the testimony of the church would become and how joyful we would become, which brings us to, well, this clock is going very quickly. Our second point. Don't worry, we can always come back next week if we need to. Um, saving faith, firstly, loves the unseen Savior, and secondly, it believes the unseen Savior. Because Peter goes on to say, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. Our faith is based on, on a belief in something that happened, an historical event the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Now, this is where it gets tricky because have you ever seen the resurrection? 
No, we just said we hadn't seen Jesus, so you haven't seen the resurrected Christ. So what are you placing your faith in then, if you have no proof? Well, we have the eyewitness accounts. We have the Bible. But that's still a pretty big leap of faith. Now, the Bible is a very well-attested and established document. But you're still ultimately putting your faith in something you've never seen. But just because you haven't seen something doesn't mean it's not there. And that's something we all do understand. Um, the 19th century chemist and bacteriologist Louis Pasteur was the one who discovered bacteria. Right? So now he knows that there's bacteria. That's why cheese gets moldy. And these microscopic organisms called microbes, we don't see them, but we know that they're there. One writer explains it this way. If you're in good health and average hygiene, you will have a herd of about one trillion bacteria grazing on your fleshy planes. About 100,000 of them on every square centimeter of your skin. So you've got a trillion little creatures on you right now. Grazing on your fleshy planes. But the reason you're not going crazy about that and moving away from everyone and scratching yourself is because you can't see them, so they don't bug you. <laughs> yeah, I can't see them, so I'm just going to pretend they're not there. And you can pretend they're not there with some ease. But you know what? If you pretend that they're not there for too long, they start to smell. So I believe in bacteria. I've never seen it. Now, I mean, why do I believe in it then? Because I trust the people who tell me. I, I trust that there's not this vast conspiracy out there that everyone with the telescope's like, let's all just pretend we see it. I mean, I've never even looked. I wouldn't even know where to get a, another telescope, a microscope. I wouldn't even know where to get a microscope uh, that strong. I've never seen it. But I trust all you people with your Bachelor of Science and your microbiology minor that you have. If you say it's there, that's fine. I don't care. I believe you. But... It explains a lot. It explains why cheese goes moldy and armpits start smelling and why cuts get infected. So it works. But then you might say, but uh, you're being inconsistent because those same people with their Bachelor of Science and their microbiology, they often will believe in evolution, which I say, yeah, no, I don't, I don't, I don't trust you on that. So why would I trust them on the microbiome, which I don't see, but I don't trust them on evolution? which we also can't see. And the answer is because of what's at stake. You see, if they're wrong about microbiology, it doesn't really matter. You know, scientists are wrong, and then they figure out something else, and they figure out that they were wrong, and they figure out something else. It doesn't really matter. As long as it explains what's going on, it's a working theory. They're going to change their minds. That's totally fine with me. They did it with ether. Nothing changed. You know, they'll do it with bacteria, maybe, or whatever it is. And they did it with Pluto. Who here in school learned that Pluto was a planet? Yeah, you see, if you take it by a vote, we win. All the kids are like, no, Dad, that's outdated now. I'm like, Pluto's still there. I don't know why it got a demotion. But my point is that maybe they'll promote it again someday, and it'll become two planets. Who cares? It, there's nothing at stake. But you start questioning the veracity of Scripture, and now, now we're talking about my eternal soul. And you start messing with what the Bible says about creation. Well, now, when does it kick in that the part that I need to take literally? That's what bugs me. So we place our faith in things where the stakes are high. 
1 Timothy 3, 16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. All scripture breathed out by God. So the faith that I have in my unseen Savior, the reason I believe in him is because of the source of the claims about him. I believe that the source is God, that he breathes this out so there's no mistakes in it, that it's inerrant and that I can put my trust in it. But that's still a leap of faith, and I'm willing to grant that. That's why we call it the faith. At some point, we're not looking for evidence anymore. We're making a leap of faith. And we're choosing to believe that statement, that all scripture is breathed out by God. And if you believe that statement, you can take everything else in it. Now, if Dr. Fauci tells me something, I'd like to see some proof. But if God tells me something, I'm good with it. I'll take it to the bank and I'll, I'll put my eternal soul in it. And that's why sometimes um, Christians will think, will even say of me, I, I, I would think you as a pastor would have more faith because you don't believe in my claim of the supernatural experience that I had. I swore I saw this person, he was dead, and he came back from the dead. You know, well, I, I, with my own eyes, saw this thing. I'm like, okay, maybe, maybe not. But my faith does not need to be dependent on your claims. I'm not required to believe anything anyone says about anything, whether it's planets or microbes or supernatural healings or anything. I am only required to believe what God says in the Bible. And everything else, I'll take it or leave it. It's all maybe. Is it bacteria on my hand? Maybe. Probably. It doesn't really matter. Did you actually witness that supernatural thing? Maybe. I don't know. That's between you and the Lord. I, I'm not required to believe it. I am required to believe Scripture. So 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, we walk by faith, not by sight. So we're not looking for proof. We're choosing. We're making a commitment to believe something. We're walking by faith, not by sight. Hebrews 11, 1 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So you don't need proof to believe because faith I'll give that again, Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So I, do, I don't believe the Bible because I can prove the Bible. I believe the Bible because I choose to believe that one verse that says it's all breathed out by God. And if I'm wrong, I'm very wrong. But that's what faith is. I know that God has revealed himself. So the third thing, we'll finish. Loves the unseen Savior, believes the unseen Savior, and rejoices in the unseen salvation. Because your question is like, what is actually at stake? Here it is. In verse 8, uh, though you do not see him, you believe in him, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome, meaning the future outcome of your faith. What is it? The salvation of your souls. So you believe in him and you rejoice with joy. What's this joy coming from? The fact that you are going to obtain a future outcome of your faith. What is the result of your faith? What is the outcome of your faith? The salvation of your souls. So my only point here is that you love Jesus, you believe in Jesus, even though you don't see him, and you're not looking for something you can see to believe in. And once you have that faith, it will produce in you joy because of what's coming 
of future salvation. And your joy will be, it will move in proportion to your faith in that future salvation. So the more you forget that you're going to be saved in the future and have revelation and judgment and all that thing from Jesus and be covered by his blood, the more you forget that, the more your joy will be vulnerable to the tempests of this life. And the more fixed you are on that future salvation, the more you'll be able to endure the trials of this life. You see how it all fits together with what Peter's been saying? Yes, you've been scattered. Yes, you're going through these trials. It's proving your faith. It's improving your faith. It's testing the genuineness of your faith. You don't even see Jesus. You've never even seen him, but you love him and you're willing to endure this for him. You've never seen him, but you believe in him. And so why are you getting this joy? Why are you rejoicing in these trials? Because you know what's coming. So I'm here just to remind you to keep calm and carry on. No matter what happens. Keep the end in mind. And how do you know? How do you know if you have this faith? Well, do you have joy about the outcome of your salvation? Because if you don't have that joy, then maybe you're not believing what you should believe. Because people are like, I don't know if I believe enough. It's not about enough. You just need a little bit of belief. You just, it's, it's, you just need to believe what happened. On, on Calvary. So if you believe that, then you're saved. I've told you that before. It's like when, you, when I took my kid's eyeball out and put it in my mouth. Obviously, I didn't actually do that. I pretended. Uh, and then I swallowed it. And he started crying. I've told you the story, right? When he was like little. He was like two years old. I used to put his eyeball in my mouth and move it. And then move it back and forth and then put it out and put it back in. And he would giggle. And one day I swallowed it. And I was like, oh, I swallowed your eyeball. And then he burst out crying. And I was like, no, 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 look, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. There's no, I didn't swallow your eyeball, it's all a joke. Look, I can do it with my tongue. And he was crying and crying, he was inconsolable until eventually I shook him, I said, Noah! Nuts, that's going to cost me some money. <laughs> Buddy! Can you see me? Yes? Then you must have eyes. And then that calmed him down. So sometimes people come, I don't know if I have enough faith. I mean, I believe what you say, but what if I'm not saved? I'm like, but let me go through the gospel with you. Yeah, yeah, I believe that, but what if I'm not saved? Well, I, I'm like, I don't know what to say to you. Like, the fact that you believe it is the faith that saves you. There's not like an amount that you have to hit. It's not like you have to fill up your faith tank. Is Jesus the Son of God? Yes. Did he live on this planet? Like, actually physically live and walk around? Yes. Without sinning, yes. And then did he die on the cross voluntarily for your sins? Yes. And they put him in a grave? Yes. And God raised him from the dead? Yes. And he, you believe that he's now in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, that he's going to come back? Yes, I believe all that. Well, that's like saying, do you see me? Then you must have eyes. You can only believe that with the faith that saves. And so if you have eyes to see that faith, that means you have faith. Now, if you're doubting those things, I don't know if it's real, I'm not sure, if the Bible's full of mistakes, it was written by people, that's a, that's a problem. Then you need some counsel and we can help you with those things. But you need to rejoice with the joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the future outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 1 John 3, 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now. 
and what will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Let's pray. Dear God, we are so thankful for this message that our unseen Savior loves us and we love him. And Lord Jesus, we do declare our love for you and you are the lover of our soul. You are the one that we run to, to hide from the tempests of this life and all of our hope we hang on you, knowing that you have the power to conquer the grave and so you have the power to conquer our graves. I pray that this very week we'll apply these truths to our lives, that we will exercise great faith in you and what you've done for us, and that we will show our love to you through the obedience that you have laid out for us in your word. In your precious name we pray. Amen.